Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I speak to Batya Ungar Sargon. Batya is a career journalist and the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek. We talked about her new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya thinks that contemporary journalism is increasingly biased because journalists are far more educated and very different from average Americans. Batya is worried that this bias is contributing to political polarization and becoming a threat to American democracy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Batya, I am really interested to talk to you about your book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And I wanted to ask you, why did you write the book? What was your major motivation for writing this particular book at this particular time? Well, the funny thing is, it's not the book that I initially wanted to write. (laughs) I had initially wanted to write a book about how the polarization narrative that we're told from the media, et cetera, at all, is not really accurate. Uh And that my experience reporting, for example, from the South during the Trump years and just being a citizen um, was that Americans had never been more united around, um, you know, the the founding values of this great nation. Oh, really? Yes. So I wrote up a whole proposal based on these ideas and I couldn't sell it. Hmm. I was told over and over that there just is no market for a book like that. It's remarkable that there's no market for that because it strikes me that that would be a positive book, an upbeat book. And so then you had to go back to the drawing board. Well, a very kind editor sat me down and she said to me, look, um, you know, you're telling me that we're not polarized. Why do I think we are? Maybe you should write that book. And I think that's the book I ended up writing. You know, bad news is about how what the elites want us to believe is a political divide or a racial divide is actually a class divide that the elites don't want to talk about because they benefit from it. is a book for you about polarization, but the subtitle is How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. So do you draw a clear link from polarization to um, threats to democracy, or do you think that polarization is in itself a sort of an undermining of democracy, or what's the relationship there? I would say um, to me, the threat to democracy is the silencing of the entire working class and much of the American middle class who don't have a say anymore in our public sphere. Um, And the kind of colonization of the fourth estate by an over-educated progressive elite who represent maybe on a good day 6% of Americans and yet have colonized 96% of the media. So to me, that's the real threat is that the people who are charged with telling the great American story are increasingly at odds with the economic interests of most Americans, as well as with their ideology and values, and yet see themselves at the forefront of some sort of you know, moral battle, you know, a Manichaean battle between good and evil. And, and so to me, that's the real threat is the kind of inversion of the triangle, if you will, to where the elites have near total control over um, the narrative and the conversation. I, I think that's extremely 
dangerous. And the only reason that things haven't gotten worse in this nation is because of the goodness of the American people who have simply refused to take the bait and start hating each other the way that elites really on both sides want us to. So for you, it seems like the the crisis is really one almost of democratic responsiveness, that you worry that because the media narrative is so skewed against the interests of low-income Americans, that their interests will therefore not be represented in public policy, they won't get a fair hearing in DC and Congress, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, is that kind of the accurate summary? Yeah, and you really see this, right? Like the more popular something is, the less likely it is to happen. So you take issues that have just like total, total man- consensus mandate, upwards of 75% approval rating. And those are the things least likely to happen in our totally polarized Congress who no longer work for the people, but really work for their own economic interests at this point. And I think the media is doing the same thing. You know, the more popular something is, the more likely the media is to turn on it. Most obvious examples being, you know, like Dr. King's vision of, of colorblind society right, has become now not only outre, but, you know, they'll now call you racist if you say that we should we should be living in a colorblind society. Same thing with gender, right? You know, it used to be that the ideal was, you know, every human should live in dignity. Today, there's they're literally pitting the rights of a teeny, teeny, tiny trans minority against the rights of, you know, 50% of the population who are women, these kinds of things where they're turning on the very values that for so long the left was working so hard to convince Americans, like, look, we should not be racist. We should all embrace Dr. King's vision. Look, it's so important to protect the dignity of every person, no matter who they are, right? These values, for a long time, it was the left that was sort of trying so hard to convince Americans to believe these things, they finally succeeded and then they turned on them. And the reason that happened, I think, you find that in, in the book Radical Sheep, right, by Tom Wolfe, who, who, who argued that when you have an elite, the number one thing that an elite has to do to survive is distinguish itself from the middle class, right? Because if you just have the same virtues and values as the middle class, how does anybody know that you're elite? And I think that's what's happening here. The elite in the commentariat has turned on these values and virtues that finally are where 95% of Americans are at, you know, that, you know, support for, for interracial marriage, for example, being a benchmark. Finally, like every Republican knows that, you know, you should support interracial marriage. And so the elites have to now turn against it. And so you'll see articles in the New York Times talking about how dangerous interracial marriage is, right? And how, you know, people of color marrying white people is a disaster and so forth. Tom Wolf called it nostalgia de la boue, you know, this kind of this desperate attempt of the elite to distinguish itself from middle class values. So are you worried about the emergence of a type of oligarchy in the United States where it's not the rule necessarily by the rich, you know, if we think about sort of the great uh, industrial magnates of the late 19th century or huge sort of corporations as the left may have actually feared in the late 90s or early 2000s. But you worry about an oligarchy of an almost a cultural media elite among the the great publishing houses, television channels, these sorts of things. I mean, I, I do think they're rich. If you think about the median income in America is between forty five and $55,000 a year. 
Like if you're making $120,000, $150,000 a year, you're rich. I mean, you're in the top 10% as soon as you get over $100,000 a year. So to me, it's a little bit of distinction without a difference. They are in the cultural elite, but also they are in the economic elite. But interestingly, so you have this top 10% of the professional managerial class, as one of your previous guests, Michael Lynn, called them. And they have huge amounts of class resentment against the millionaire and billionaire class because they don't understand why they're not in that class. You know, they have all of these credentials. How is it that, you know, they aren't flying private? They aren't flying first class. So they have huge amounts of class resentment against the millionaire and billionaires that ironically, the working class does not have that same resentment against millionaires and billionaires, often because they are employed by them. But also, they just don't have class resentment against people who have sort of, you know, worked hard and made it from an economic point of view. They have huge amounts of class resentment against this professional managerial class, who from their point of view, they don't really produce anything of value. And yet they are somehow able to buy property to buy homes, whereas, you know, that's becoming increasingly difficult for people in the working class. It occurs to me that recording this podcast in October 2022, that this narrative about threats to democracy in the United States in particular, but even in other Western countries, has really taken on a huge public prominence. But the narrative is mostly about the threat of democracy from radical right-wing movements, right? Where, of course, this is epitomized by the events on January 6th at the US Capitol and this idea that right-wing movements are the real threat to democracy. Joe Biden gave a pretty well-publicized speech about this where he basically insinuated that certain elements of the Republican Party and further to the right are real threats to the stability of American democracy. But it seems like you see the threat to American democracy coming from somewhere else. Yeah, I, I don't consider 700 miscreants to be a threat to democracy. I don't think I don't consider them to be a threat to anything except the public order for three hours. And I, 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 the funny thing is, though, something like 80 percent of Americans are worried about our democracy. So a lot of people on the right are also worried about democracy, but from a different point of view. They're worried about, for example, the FBI becoming politicized and going after, you know, the political enemies of the Biden administration, right? So to the, you know, you ask Americans, is our democracy under threat? And a lot of them will say yes, although of course people on the left are considering it to be, you know, undermining our free and fair elections, whereas people on the right consider it to be more from the point of view of the politicization of our institutions. It does strike me, though, that there's something disturbing about this consensus that there are threats to democracy and therefore there's some sort of existential question about the political institutions and the political regime that we live under in the United States. And yet they have completely differing um, views on what those threats are. Don't you think that's quite a sort of a troubling and destabilizing kind of tendency? No, I don't. Um what I want, the one thing I would like people to walk away from this is like to realize that the president of the United States could have called for overturning our elections and only 700 people showed up to take him up on his call for violence. Like that, that's pretty impressive. Our democracy is in really good shape. Our nation is in really good shape. You know, except for the fact that our elites don't serve the people anymore. Everything seems to me to be holding up marvelously well to a, a rather significant onslaught <laughs> when you consider everything Trump seemed willing to do to stay in office. So I feel extremely hopeful and I think that there's a real shift among the American people away from 
sort of granting authority to the kinds of institutions that are undermining our best interests. And I, I feel very hopeful and excited about that. Why don't you walk us through the story that you tell in your book then? Because you obviously come down very firmly on the side that the threat to democracy in the United States is not from the right wing masses, shall we say, the threat of a sort of a mass right wing authoritarianism, semi-fascism and sort of rejection of democratic values and institutions, but that the threat is from elites on the left. And specifically, it seems like the threat is among um, journalists in the media. So why don't you tell us um, just the first thing I'd like to know is how do you see the post-war era of American journalism? Because to some degree, that's where the story starts. And it seems like things were better then in your estimation. Right. So let me just clarify one thing. I don't think journalists are the biggest threat. I would say, you know, NAFTA was probably the biggest threat, you know, in a better era, a sense that you could have a working class job and lead a middle class life and that there was a political party that was responsible to you. That characterized, I think, very much the post-war era, of course, not for everybody. You know, black Americans were still struggling with segregation in certain areas of the nation. It was like we were clearly failing to guarantee equality before the law for black Americans. You know, there we were struggling to to make good on, you know, all of the promises that this nation was founded on. But more or less, the vision was that, you know, your politicians were going to Washington to represent you and your interests, and that the jobs that, you know, we all rely on to survive, the people who make everything and grow everything and move everything, um, that those people could be assured to have a, a shot at the American dream, right? So that was true up and through the 70s. You know, it's not, it wasn't journalists' fault that that stopped being the case, but they definitely played a role in it. So part of the story I tell in the book is how journalism went from being um, a working class trade to being really the provenance of elites. You know, the early part of the century, journalism was a very low class job. It was low status. Most journalists didn't go to college. They were the kind of person who was like too anti-authoritarian to join all their friends in the factory because they wouldn't have been able to listen, take instructions. So instead, they went to Washington to give a hard time to the, the rich and powerful on behalf of all of their friends who worked in factories, you know, and they lived in working class neighborhoods and they really saw themselves through that lens. That all started to shift um, in the post-Watergate era um, when suddenly journalism started to seem like a very glamorous endeavor. Um, and so higher class people started to apply. They started to see it as a compelling alternative to going into politics or going into, you know, some other job that, you know, increasingly required an education. And so you had this sort of status revolution among the class of people who became journalists that was like pretty much complete by the 80s. And I argue in the book that because journalists stopped being part of the working class, they stopped seeing themselves as answerable to the working class. And they started reporting from a much more upper middle class elite point of view. In the previous era, it would have been impossible for Bill Clinton to have signed NAFTA into law because the journalists would have gone nuts. They would have just hounded 
him. It would have been just the way that the journalists treated Donald Trump for getting rid of NAFTA. That's how journalists would have treated somebody for enacting such a disastrous and ruinous policy that was so obviously at odds with the working class's interests. But because journalists no longer lived in working class neighborhoods and no longer had working class friends and no longer saw themselves as answerable to those people, they sort of viewed NAFTA the way the government did from the point of view of consumers, which is to say from the point of view of the elites, or as in your work, you might have pointed out from the point of view of somebody, you know, in an urban setting, right? They weren't the ones who signed this into law, but they were part of a kind of shift in terms of where the symbolic power of the nation lay, I would say. Bhatia, is this just sort of part of a broader story of the decline of the working class, not only in the US, but in basically every advanced industrial democracy. If we go back to the 70s, then the share of manufacturing and employment was much higher than it is today. The share of union membership in the private sector in particular was much, much higher than it is today, 20 or 30%, whereas today it's more like 5%. Um, you could probably tell a similar story on a much lower level of the decline of the rural economy right? The decline of agriculture mm-hmm. is a major source of employment. So is the decline of working class journalists just part of the broader story of the decline of working class people in general? Or was there something special about the way that this happened in journalism? Both. So 100% it was part of that larger story, but also it had its unique manifestations, right? So journalism used to be produced by people who didn't really have a college degree. And then they would write the stories, which would maybe be edited by somebody who had a college degree, but maybe not. But then there was a host of ancillary jobs that were working class jobs, you know, involved in distribution in printing, right, in trucking in all of the jobs involved in getting the words before the eyes of the reader, who was often a working class person, were done by working class jobs. Today, all those jobs are done by, you know, graduates of fancy universities who studied all sorts of, you know, knowledge industry jobs like digital industries, right? So whether it's like, you know, social media editors or whether it's people who are, you know, writing code or people who are sort of in all of the, you know, all of those jobs that used to be like printers and truckers are now done by people with college educations who who wield immense power in the newsroom despite themselves not being journalists in a way that like the guy who drove the New York Times to the station where the paper boy would pick it up would never have that kind of power. That's a very compelling and interesting point among many interesting points of your book is this decline of the working class jobs within the journalism industry. You know, I'm from New Zealand and one of my mother's best friends when I was growing up was a photographer at our local newspaper Mm. that was called The Press. And his son, when he was in high school, he got him a part-time job working in the printing room at the newspaper in Christchurch. And I still remember he was a couple of years younger than me, my mother's friend's son. And um, I remember hearing about his part-time job and it sounded actually amazing to be running these enormous printing machines. And it was a very obviously sort of blue collar environment. And he really enjoyed doing that. And you're right, those jobs, those jobs have gone and they have been replaced by these sorts of obviously digital content creators because that's where the newspapers are distributed these days. But the point that those people have a say in sort of the editorial side of the newspaper, whereas the the printers would not, that's something that I had not thought about that I think is actually really interesting. Yeah. And you really see this blowing up at a place like the New York Times, where a lot of the things that erupted 
like the firing of James Bennett, you know, the whole sort of, you know, summer of 2020, all of these sort of big revolutions that were shaking the foundations of the New York Times, a lot of those were driven by people in these kind of digital jobs, which tend to be where diversification efforts happen, but specifically diversification efforts where they're culling from the same very elite universities. When you come from one of these universities, when you go to one of these schools, you pick up a set of values around free speech that are like totally the opposite of what those blue collar environments would be like. You know, blue collar environments are like famously places where your status is totally determined by like how well you can take a joke, right? Especially an offensive joke, right? This is just like how people like that tend to talk, how they interact, how, and it's sort of the opposite in these uh, overeducated elite spaces where, you know, your status is determined by your ability to police other people telling sometimes offensive jokes. And so I think that probably had a huge impact on the ways in which, you know, the kinds of speech and language are allowed, cancel culture, all of these things that are just very alien to what that printing press room would have been like, you know, as recently as 30 years ago. One thing that jumped out at me, really jumped off the page, was several times you said that in this previous era, before the 1980s or 1990s, and I'd like to ask you more about what the key turning points were later on, but one of the key things that jumped out is the idea that journalists didn't need to have a college degree. And I'm wondering, is part of the problem here the fact that these degrees are simply required now? Could there be a relatively simple change that maybe there could be a more of an apprenticeship sort of vocational training model re-implemented in the journalism profession? Do you think that's something that is possible that could happen to try and push back against what you see here as this very destructive tendency? God, I, I mean, I wish. So the guy who's in charge of recruiting the New York Times' interns, his name is Theodore Kim, he accidentally like said the quiet part out loud and was like, you know, I just have to say that the best intern applicants we get just happened to be from, and he named, you know, I think it was like Columbia Journalism School and two other like Ivies. Northwestern was the other one. I forgot which the third one was. It's just so gross. I mean, you're the New York Times. Like, what is your excuse for the fact that 70% of your college interns come from not just college-educated backgrounds, but the top 1% of universities? And by the way, that's NPR, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Aside from the Wall Street Journal, these are all places that, like, pride themselves on their progressivism. But actually, NPR, which is, like, the wokest of the woke its numbers were 75%. It was the highest level of taking interns only from the top 1% of university. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting and inexcusable. What is your excuse to the New York Times? You could have anybody. And what that what happens when you can have anybody is they go for the Harvard and the Princeton. And so that's what their newsrooms now look like. And that's why you have like, I mean, that's the, the main argument of the book is that the woke revolution, they want you to think that this is a political revolution. They want you to think this is about racial justice, but it has nothing nothing to do with that. It has to do with importing a very bespoke academic language about race and gender that, by the way, that's not how people of color talk about themselves. We have poll after poll that shows that and importing that into the newsroom and then using that power and that perch to silence any dissent.
Another point that you mentioned about the training or the background of journalists is that to a large extent, the junior level positions are internships or they require an internship. And those internships are either unpaid or very, very poorly paid. And so we end up with a sort of a situation where only people from wealthy backgrounds can even get a foot in the door. Is that still true or is that something that is changing or could be changed? It's so funny because this is the one thing that journalists they get the most angry when you bring up, like they just cannot stand when you bring up the economic privilege involved in a starting salary of $35,000 a year, but you have to live in New York or DC or San Francisco because 75% of journalism jobs are in the most expensive American cities. Like it's somebody else is paying your rent if you're making $35,000 a year and living in New York. It's not really feasible. I'm not saying nobody does it. You know, like every time I bring this up, someone comes out of the woodwork and is like, I am working three jobs and blah, blah, blah. And that's how I did it actually. But, you know, it's few and far between. Mostly these are kids who are being financed by somebody else. Oftentimes, most of the time, affluent parents. And so they'll bring up the low starting salary of journalists to be like, journalists aren't rich. The average you know, salary is $46,000 a year. And that's true. You know, the whole entering cohort is making starvation wages and their parents are paying their rent. And then by the time you're in your 40s or 50s, you're going to be making north of, you know, $100,000, $150,000 a year, which I'm sorry, that's rich in America compared to what everybody else is making. So, but do you think it's changing? I mean, this is, this is something I'm wondering is whether there are sort of initiatives underway to diversify economically the incoming cohorts of journalists at some of the major organizations, things like this, that similarly to maybe to reforming the requirements for education could push back against this elitism that you're so worried about? To my knowledge, and, you know, I've been sort of not following this as closely over the last six months, but, you know, while I was writing the book, certainly I was paying very close attention to this. To my estimation, all of the diversity efforts are deeply, deeply invested in racial diversity, which means that you get a lot of very wealthy Black and Hispanic and Asian journalists. Every person of color who goes to Harvard who majors in journalism, you know, can be sure to get a job, right? That's where the diversification efforts are happening. Whereas, you know, forget about, you know, working class white kids, working class kids of color, forget about it. I mean, because they are the least likely to make it to college. They're the least likely to make it to to one of these positions. I was hesitant to bring it up, but you, you mentioned it, your experience as a young journalist, because one thing I was wondering as I was reading the book is, is it not just a concern about polarization, a concern about democracy in America, but is there a personal story here? How was your experience coming up through the ranks as a journalist? Did you yourself witness this transition to a more politically activist journalist profession? Is that something that motivated you to write this story as well? It's very hard to say. I mean, I definitely witnessed it. So I remember like in 2014, I wrote an article for the New Republic saying that you know the, it was around the time of the Obama administration's Title IX dear colleague letter where they wanted to enforce a kind of standard of affirmative consent for sex for college students. And I wrote a piece being like, this is very bad for women, you know, like 
this is it's infantilizing it's very unappealing sexually like nobody wants to be asked 30 times during a sexual episode like can i do this can i do this can i do this the idea that consent and eros are at odds with each other i argued is really dangerous in terms of press and very bad for women we should be teaching women the opposite, how to stand up for themselves and force their desires, etc. Okay, that is the kind of piece you could never write for the New Republic today. Like, so that was like the moment before the new standard where you're not allowed to have diversity of opinion at leftist publications that used to pride themselves on that. I got a PhD before I became a journalist, so I was very familiar with the kind of woke ideology, but I thought I had left it behind in academia, and it sort of followed me slowly but surely into journalism when it, when it became, you know, the new lingua franca around 2015. Certainly by 2016, it was firmly entrenched. I'm wondering about these turning points, if there was indeed this pre- modern, well, not pre-modern, but post-war, pre-whatever we have today, media landscape. You mentioned the Watergate scandal as a major turning point and leading to a more college-educated, liberal, insulated journalistic profession. What are the other major turning points in your mind? That's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, Watergate was very big in terms of, you know, the shift from not having a college education to a college education being pretty much a requirement. And today, actually, most journalists have a graduate degree. So that tells you even more. You know, I talk a lot about the birth of American journalism. The times in American journalism that I'm most nostalgic for, you know, let's say the turn of the century, these sort of great moments of populist press, the press was not nonpartisan. It was deeply partisan. But it was partisan on behalf of the working class, of the masses. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. You know, if you were a communist in New York City in the 1920s, there were so many communist newspapers for you to choose from. You just had your pick, right? And because there were so many, the papers were falling all over themselves to represent the people. And so the problem with today's journalism, I would argue, is not that it's partisan because you can have a thriving partisan journalistic landscape and ecosystem. The problem with our journalism is that the left-wing journalism is partisan on behalf of the top 10% and the right-wing journalism is partisan on behalf of the top 5%. And so and nobody's speaking to the rest of Americans. One question that I have is also about another preoccupation today when it comes to the media is about disinformation. So you talked about a populist press. Now, I'm not an expert on the history of American journalism, but I can't help but think that there maybe wasn't a lot of fact checking going on among the, <laughs> the, you know, these very partisan and very numerous and relatively, as you say, un educated, maybe very intelligent, very professional, but not college educated journalists and publications in this previous era. Was this an era where there was a lot of what we call disinformation today? So are you saying that there can be all sorts of spurious claims being published by all sorts of dubious and not so dubious actors, but it's not really a, a big deal? Because the media was so partisan, you could be certain that there was going to be an outlet to check you. But, you know, famously, the pro and anti-Lincoln newspapers during the Civil War would report things in like completely different ways. Like, it would be like, was I at the same event? But I, I will draw your attention to the fact that, you know, reporting on, you know, former President Trump's rallies 
in the right and left wing press, you had the same exact thing, right? So this era of like, you know, fact checking, gold, whatever, quote unquote, golden era of, of fact checking, what you ended up with was, you know, the steel dossier and the P tape and the Russiagate hoax. And so, so I, I think the real time in which the press was like the most closely hewing to what we would consider to be like factual truth was maybe in that kind of post-war era. And the reason for that, again, comes back to class. It's about the fact that, you know, the elites, when they would open their New York Times, they wanted to read a newspaper that they could picture a Republican reading. It was considered parochial and provincial to read a partisan paper in that post-war era because there was so much upward mobility. And so these class distinctions were sort of melting away. And so political distinctions were not as salient. And so you would have an elite that wanted a nonpartisan kind of news. And so a New York Times that was catering to them, they couldn't offend their sensibilities by getting things wrong. Today, we've really gone back to that sort of partisan model where the New York Times, you know, has to get things right about Democrats, but not about Republicans, whereas Fox News has to get things right about Republicans, but not about Democrats necessarily. You've got the Wall Street Journal really trying its best to get it right about everybody. But that distinction, again, is about class. You know, the New York Times cannot afford to offend rich progressives. And that's the long and the short of it. And those people are not offended, even when it turns out that the Steele dossier was a hoax. They don't care because it was about their enemies. I was thinking myself as I was reading your book about these turning points, right? You mentioned Watergate, but you also mentioned the Kennedy administration, which I thought was fascinating. The idea that the Kennedy administration also created this sort of uh, buy-in or mystique for more educated journalism. But then I thought that some of the other big ones, and criticize me or tell me if I'm wrong here, were the advent of the internet for a start that seems to have had a massive effect on the business model of major newspapers. And social media, the rise of social media as driving journalists' interests, where journalists get their information, how journalists are getting their stories out there, etc. And then the election of Donald Trump, which in, in your account seemed to almost save print media or at least guarantee them or give them a massive financial windfall. The, the numbers that you present about the increase in subscriber numbers at the New York Times around Donald Trump are absolutely astounding. And one thing that strikes me if we, if I, as I think about these kind of turning points is they seem to be coming more frequently, right? This seems to be a profession that is being increasingly buffeted by pretty severe shocks. Would you, would you agree with that characterization? Yes. Everything you just said, definitely. Yeah. It suggests to me that maybe there could be more changes in store that we don't anticipate at all, right? Who would have anticipated that these struggling business models under the threat of the internet would be sort of saved by, of all people, Donald Trump, right, that would grant the New York Times this massive, I mean, you yeah. said that they've grown their online revenues to about a billion dollars a year, which is just, it's kind of astounding to me. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, increasingly, I think the New York Times sees itself as, you know, an app that has, you know, a cooking page, which is where that drives like a huge amount of the revenue and they a games page. They do have good page. recipes, Batya. What can I say? I know they do. I know. <laughs> Even I, for uh... inept cooks like myself. 
have to admit, I do make the New York Times' gravlocks all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, seeing themselves as a kind of integrated app that also has news, right? And increasingly, as Facebook sort of turns away from news towards meta, I mean, I don't know how much that will stick. I'm, I'm sort of a meta skeptic, but... I read a report in the Wall Street Journal today that was super pessimistic about Meta, or this week at least, that something they have something like 200,000 users or something in in total. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, Meta, Bitcoin, like if you can't imagine a truck driver making use of something, I grow very skeptical of its ability to sort of take hold, you know, of the American imagination. What about the rise of completely alternative, completely decentralized media like uh, podcasts, like Joe Rogan's podcast, which I have not really ever listened to, but I have heard that it has a reach, that it reaches hundreds, tens or hundreds of... 11 there, million, yeah. Oh, are these a threat to the established media? Is this a way that the elitist nature of the media is under threat or could be changed. You know, if the New York Times wanted to reach out to this massive audience that Rogan reaches, perhaps they adopt some aspects of of his business model. Is, is that a prospect for change? I mean, I think his business model is directly contradictory to the idea of sort of like credentialing or gatekeeping or, you know, it, I think his audience is probably very heavily made up of working class people whose jobs involve, you know, working with their hands and and free them up to listen to a three hour podcast, which is not something that I would ever do. But I I do think that alternative media, Joe Rogan, um, Matt Taibbi comes to mind as somebody extremely important. Glenn Greenwald, these are all opening up breathing space for people who feel who have really lost faith in um, mainstream media. I mean, that's a good thing overall, for sure, to give people avenues of information that more clearly align with how they see the world. And I think we're going to see, you know, in this next election that that's even having big electoral results as well. Isn't the election of Donald Trump a kind of a direct challenge to your thesis that, because it seems to me that the sorts of people, lower educated Americans, are the exact people that Trump was trying to reach out to in his campaigns in 2016 and 2020, and he was able to win the election. Isn't the election of Trump kind of a challenge to your thesis that this elite driven media is a challenge to democracy? Well, I definitely think he was like the return of the repressed, you know, <laughs> like you tried to silence us and we're going to have our way and we're going to elect him. And I think that that was, yeah, I definitely, unlike most elites, I think that, you know, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump were just real triumphs for democracy. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I'm hopeful. You are hopeful about these trends in the future. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, Glenn Youngkin, uh, Ron DeSantis, these are all people who are like Trump, see themselves as sort of answerable to a middle class, working class, average American, and increasingly from an economic point of view. You know, before Trump, you really had sort of one party catering to the overeducated elite and one party catering to the rich elite and really sort of a total abandonment of the working class. And, you know, Fox News conservative media is very good at reflecting 
the social mores of the working class, but they're just as addicted to the free markets as, you know, Clinton and Obama were, you know, that kind of neoliberal way of life was really, there was a handshake agreement between both parties. Trump really upended that. I mean, he really took an ax to the neoliberal order. And in a way that I think was from an economic point of view, he just ticked off stuff from Bernie Sanders' wish list in 2015. Of course, by the time Bernie ran in 2020, he had a totally different uh, persona and platform. But I think from that point of view, Trump introduced into the right the idea that you know trickle-down economics is a farce and you actually have to pay attention to these people. Of course, now he's become totally obsessed with, you know, having lost the election. And, it, you know, his speeches used to be that you could sum, summarize them, you know, by saying, they stole everything from you. You know, he would go to middle America, he would go to these like destroyed working class towns and say they stole everything from you. And of course, today, all he ever talks about is, you know, they stole everything from me. Right. He's had this real um, shift. But I think that the, it's just undeniable that he created an economy that worked for the working class, both in terms of their perception, but also in terms of real wages. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about that because the right is so anxious to get back to the trickle down stuff and the left can't stand to give him credit for anything. Is there potential for a media revolution as well that sort of follows the Trump model to basically sell newspapers or some sort of media, and I'm talking here, maybe Joe Rogan is kind of an example of this, but is there the potential or a growing network of these sorts of new media outlets that cater to this working class milieu that you see as having been abandoned by the mainstream media, for want of a better term? There's a lot of stuff happening on YouTube, and the problem is is that it's happening on YouTube. (laughs) The content moderation on YouTube, just like on Twitter, is very tightly connected to the kind of Democratic Party platform. So in that sense, that there's sort of a give and take happening right now between more conservative, more working class content creators. And I guess we'll see where that goes. Rumble's trying to give YouTube a, a run for its money, but you know that could end up being kind of like what happened with Parler, where basically they were like, we're not going to moderate anything. And, you know, like Jews know you don't go on Parler, right? Because they don't they don't moderate anything. That was another question I had was whether any of these alternative social media platforms have taken off. I know that Trump was associated with a couple of these. I go on Truth Social to see what Trump is saying. It's very hard to like it's hard to compete with something that's like Twitter, for example, it's just where all the journalists go to impress each other, where they go to sit there and publish something in the hopes and prayers that AOC will retweet it, right? Like everybody's playing in that pool. It's hard to compete. I do think that the question of content moderation is is a really, really big one. And I don't have the answers there. I really don't. You end your book with a, an epilogue with a couple of pieces of advice. One of them is to starve them of your rage. The second is understand the connection between the working class and conservatism. Find and protect non-political spheres in your life and to be humble about the right things. Maybe it'll be a good way to conclude the discussion by giving us a little bit more of a insight into these pieces of advice you conclude your book with. Every time you're on the internet and you read something and you feel like that explosive feeling of rage... Like, how could somebody think this about a stranger? 
someone just made a million dollars. Like that, it's not natural to feel that way about strangers and very smart people in Silicon Valley have figured out how to essentially commodify our emotions. And you just have to stop giving them that money and giving them that satisfaction. They desperately want us to hate our fellow Americans because it makes them a lot of money. And you have total control of like whether or not you're going to give them that. And I, it takes time. You have to train yourself. But I would say, you know, what I would want to see is every time they have that emotion, instead of hating that person, realizing that someone's trying to make them hate someone to make money. And you can say no and you can become part of the force that is trying to stitch back together American society rather than tear it further apart. Well, Bacha, I think that's a great place for us to conclude. Thank you very much. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank um, you. I learned a lot from your book. I hope you have a great visit out here at Arizona State. And I would like to ask you one question that we ask all of our guests here on the Keeping It Civil podcast, which is what is one book or film or podcast or piece of art or music that you would recommend to listeners who are interested in this topic of civil discourse and free speech and debate? Oh, wow. What a great question. The book I think that had the deepest impact on me when I was writing my book was probably Christopher Lash's book, Revolt of the Elites. I think that's a really important book. He got there before a lot of people who are in the same space as me trying to point out the same things as me but it is one of those books that makes you very angry (laughs) so I don't know that it's good at um, doing the work of making people feel maybe you could advise them to read that book while taking your piece of advice to not give in to their rage (laughs) sure (laughs) sounds good thank you very much Bhatia this has been great thank you so much for having me 